0: Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21 for the reading of God's Word. In your Pew Bible, that'd be 1049, page 1049 in your Pew Bible. We'll be reading verses 1 through 27 of Matthew chapter 21. The Word of the Lord says Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Beth Page to the Mount of Olives, The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when he, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, "'Hosanna to the Son of David!' They were indignant. And they said to him, "'Do you hear what the, these are saying?' Jesus said to them, "'Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise.' And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry." And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, "'May no fruit ever come from you again.' And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, "'How did the fig tree wither at once?' And Jesus answered them, "'Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, "'you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, "'but even if you say to this mountain, "'Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen.' And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come? From heaven? or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you have your copy of God's word, I want to ask you if
1: you would to turn with me to Matthew's gospel as we continue our study in this gospel. We are in a transition in the gospel of Matthew. As you saw in chapter 21, they are coming, Jesus and the disciples here with many crowds are coming into uh, Jerusalem. And uh, in this text, Jesus is going to live out what I believe is exemplary of the life of a prophet in the word of God. God's prophets often use symbols uh, to get across the message of God. As I began to think about that, I would say to us, we use symbols in everyday life. Every part of our life is, uh, is Uh, saturated with symbols. As a matter of fact, if you think about the most common thing we have as language together, it is made up of symbols. Whether it's the written language that we have, we have the English alphabet where we make some uh, markings on a piece of paper and we all commonly recognize them as letters in our alphabet, but they're just symbols. If you were to see another language, you would look at it and it wouldn't necessarily be a letter to you. It would just be something written on a page and if you didn't know what the accepted symbol was, you would not Be able to communicate. Same thing with the spoken word. We use our voices to make audible sounds that you and I understand the symbolic sound, and we make words in our own hearing that go into our mind, and it has meaning because we share the symbols, whether written or auditory. There are symbolic actions all the way around us, not just symbols that we see or hear. We live out symbolic actions in our lives. Some of them are frivolous and I'll let you spend time thinking about some of the actions that we take that are symbolic. They're meant to say something and and maybe they're just superficial. We really don't mean anything by them. We just want to do them maybe uh, for the benefit of others seeing that, but not really the meaning that it has behind it. And I was thinking our culture, here we are in North Carolina, a big racing state, and uh, I can't tell you the last time that I've watched a NASCAR race, but I used to really enjoy watching NASCAR, and every time after the race, did not matter how many drivers they interviewed, every one of the drivers that was interviewed held a, a, a bottle or a can or, or something of the beverage that sponsored them. So whether it's Pepsi or Gatorade or Uh, some kind of other sport drink or whatever they're holding a bottle of that in the interview and they always take a sip of it before the interview's over just a symbolic action to say hey these people are paying my salary I want you to know I drink this drink and so it's a symbolic action that has a message to us sometimes there's they're superficial like that frivolous like that or maybe perhaps they are they carry more meaning like when you and I step into a congregation like this or, or a church building like this and we gather as believers and we kneel down on uh, a knee and pray. Or at home we kneel down or close our eyes as a, as a matter of, of uh, focusing our attention, of bowing ourselves before the God that we are speaking to in prayer. So sometimes the symbolic action has great meaning. I also started to think some of our actions that are symbolic are habitual. We get so used to doing them. That we just do them without even thinking anymore. And it's not necessarily that the meaning is gone then, uh, but that the meaning is not as fresh as it was when we started doing it. Um, For example, next week we'll come to the Lord's table. Uh, I don't think that we as Poplar Spring celebrate the Lord's table enough for it to become habitual for you. Uh, But it certainly is something that could mean, uh, could carry, and does carry great meaning, but could just be kind of habit of what we do at church and not carry the meaning that that symbolic action carries for us. Sometimes we do these things that are supposed to be symbols just for show, just for show. I think I confessed to you guys a... A couple of years ago it was that I caught myself, I love to serve my wife and uh, want her to know that I serve her and I love her that way. A couple of years ago I caught myself opening a a car door for her and uh, my heart just was convicted that uh, I was doing that uh, because I, I was thinking about who was watching me do that. I was not doing it to serve my wife. I was doing it for show and sometimes we do those things. We come to a text here in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus is going to do three things and they're not for show, they carry great meaning. As a matter of fact, church, I want you to carry the weight of where we are in Matthew's gospel because he's come to Jerusalem four times now in the text. He's told his disciples, I'm headed to Jerusalem where I will be arrested I'll be persecuted, I'll suffer many things, and I will be killed, and then I'll be raised from the dead. So he knows what's going to happen, and here in Matthew chapter 21, in the first part of this chapter, you and I are going to see three symbolic actions that Jesus is going to take that will clearly declare, here is who I am, here is who has come into Jerusalem, and it will not be missed by the religious leaders. And so my prayer this morning is that it will not be missed by us. Because all of these actions, I believe in this text, call us to respond to Jesus based on the meaning of the action. And so, let's look at three symbolic actions in this story that will help us understand uh, Jesus and who He is and how we are to respond. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 21, we find out they draw near to Jerusalem. Let me just remind you, back in chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus had told them He's going to Jerusalem. He's told them three other times that they have made their way up to Caesarea Philippi, which is in Galilee. That's mostly where Jesus has done His ministry. Don't miss that. That for this week. This is the first time Matthew has recorded Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So that's significant. The Galileans uh, are the ones, he's born in Nazareth in Galilee. He's done his ministry there in northern part Uh, of the nation now he's come down into judah uh, 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 and and jerusalem or excuse me judea and jerusalem where he will be attacked and and persecuted and so he has this great following with him they're all coming into jerusalem for passover so there's great crowds coming to jerusalem jesus is coming so just put it in perspective for you. We've spent this entire time in Jesus' ministry. Now we are about the last week of his ministry. Maybe give or take a little bit. He's coming into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And it's probably, you'll see in just a minute, people are throwing branches down. It's what you and I celebrate as Palm Sunday. Uh, I think it's Luke's gospel tells us these are actually palm branches they're putting down for him. And so this, your Bible probably has this label, the triumphant entry. Uh into Jerusalem. And so this is Jesus coming to Jerusalem about a week before his crucifixion. And we're going to spend a good bit of time uh, leading up to that crucifixion and Jesus' symbolic actions today. His teaching next time in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll see him teaching here. He'll go back up on the Mount of Olives, which you see today, and he'll teach there. And then he'll come back, be arrested and killed. So Jesus coming into Jerusalem with his disciples and clearly the Time has come for him to declare, here's who I am. He is going to do some things that will show who he is. And so let's go into the text. Three statements about Jesus from these symbolic actions, their meaning, and our response. The first one here is they come into Jerusalem, they come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, And Jesus begins this action. And so I want to show you what this means. Here's the statement. Jesus is the promised messianic king. He is the promised king who comes in peace. You and I should praise him. Jesus is the promised king who comes in peace. You and I should praise him. Matthew tells us there in verse 1 that he comes to Bethpage. That is during festival time pretty much that will be for us the, uh, the eastern border of Jerusalem as a city. So think about it with me. You've got a city of Jerusalem, roughly around 30,000 people or so. And during festival time, especially Passover, Passover is one of the biggest uh, events that we have in Jerusalem. And so what happens in this time is that about 180,000 people are in Jerusalem. So as there are that many people in Jerusalem at this time, the city's uh, borders kind of expand. Bethpage is a village outside of Jerusalem that is probably about two or three miles east of Jerusalem on the side of the Mount, Mount of Olives. So Matthew places where they are for us to think about the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to teach in just a couple of chapters overlooking the city seeing all of that and Jesus pretty significant from Old Testament times Jesus coming into the city Jerusalem into the temple from the eastern side and so we begin at the end of verse 2, or excuse me, the end of verse 1. Jesus says, as they're walking into the city, Jesus says, go into that village over there. I think they could probably see it. Go to the village over there across from us, and there'll be a donkey and her colt tied up with her. Bring them to me. If anyone asks you about it, tell them the Lord has need of them. And so it's kind of a strange thing here. We won't camp out here very long. It's a strange thing for Jesus to say, go into that village over there, and you're going to find a donkey and her colt. Just bring them to me if anyone asks you about it, you know tell them i've got the lord's got need of them uh, I think best best that I can tell reading the commentaries, most likely Jesus is saying i've prearranged that there's some there's a donkey and a colt over there. I want you to bring them to me and if anybody asks the owner uh, assumption here, the owner uh, ask you about it, tell them this the Lord has need of them he'll send them immediately uh, as if He knows this is coming. So here's the passphrase. Tell them the Lord has need of. I want to bring out this fact that he says there, the Lord. Jesus has not used this title for himself. So even here with his disciples, just make a distinction for you. Uh, throughout this entire section, I've told you from 1621 on, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus has been focusing on the disciples. Here, he's talking to them again. He says, Tell them the Lord has need of them. But the crowds are going to play back into this. So from here on, the crowds are with them. So we haven't seen the crowds in a while that are following. The big crowd from Galilee coming into Jerusalem with Jesus. Jesus still talking to the disciples, says, The Lord has need of them. Definite article there, the Lord. He's referring to himself. I think he's even claiming to them what they have already known. Um, significant here, Jesus claiming to be Lord in front of his disciples. So, characteristically, verse 4, Matthew tells us why this is happening. Why would Jesus, watch this, the, the, the gospel writers never give us any indication that Jesus is on an animal until right here, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Put in perspective for you, he's in Galilee, he does hundreds of miles of ministry everywhere in Galilee, he walks everywhere he goes. We left him at the end of chapter 20 verse 34 in Jericho, there's a, there's a road, a, mil- a Roman military road that went from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's about 17 miles, we'd have every expectation that's the road they would take. Jesus walks 15 miles with his disciples, they get to Jerusalem he says, hey guys, go get these two donkeys, I want to go the last two miles on a donkey. He's not just coming up with this. It was not just some kind of spontaneous thing. You get it? He's walked all this way. Now he wants to come into the city on a donkey. He is being symbolic in what he does. And Matthew tells us why. He says, remember what was said by the prophet Zechariah. And he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 for us with overtones of other verses in the Old Testament. But here, specifically Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah has said, Jerusalem rejoice your king is coming to you on a donkey. Now, not only is it symbolic and we should take note that Jesus is no longer walking. He finishes this long 17 mile journey and says, hey, I'm going to be on this donkey coming in. He is saying, I am that king from Zechariah chapter 9. The one that the Old Testament said was coming. I am that King, so that is significant that he is on a not walking. It's also significant that he's on a donkey. Now, just as a reminder, Genesis chapter 49 reminded us Jacob prophesying to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes. You remember this? The end of Genesis 49 Jacob prophesies to all 12 sons. He gets to Judah and he says, Judah, the scepter. That is, the kingship will never leave your household. There will be someone to sit on the throne that will be king from the tribe of Judah forever and ever. And in that verse, he mentions both a donkey and a colt. All right, so Genesis 49, way back then, we're reminding that there's a donkey and a colt that's going to play into the king who will be king forever. In Zechariah, you've just heard what was read there. In Isaiah, uh, we talk about that. David comes back into the city after a great defeat, uh, a great victory, defeating uh, an uprising on a donkey. Here, Jesus is coming into the capital city, riding on a donkey. Now, it's significant if you read Zechariah chapter 9, We quoted verse 9 here. You quote verse 10. My big question as I read this and maybe yours is, why would Jesus not come in on a war horse or a chariot like a king would come in? So two reasons. First, I think there was some great expectation by the Galileans that he would overcome the Romans. That he would be a military king and they would set up a nation. And Jesus is clearly saying, as Zechariah said, he's coming in humbly. Meekness is, is characterizing Jesus. So he's coming in, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And it symbolizes peace. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is quoted. Verse 10 says, the war horse, the chariot, and the bow will be no more. Because your king is coming in peace. Jesus is doing a symbolic action that is saying, I'm coming as a king, the Messiah king, the one that Zechariah was talking about, the one that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah chapter 62 verse 11. Behold, your salvation has come. The one that the Old Testament prophesied, and I'm coming with peace, not on a war horse. And so, Matthew is calling your attention. Jesus is here The king has arrived and he's coming in peace. Not to attack or or fight the Roman Empire, but to fight something much greater to bring peace for us. To bring peace for us. The point here is that Jesus is the king. That's what he's saying. He's not coming as anything other than the Messiah king, the promised king of God. He's visibly showing, I am the promised king from the Old Testament. He's a king with compassion and kindness. Riding on a donkey symbolizes this for Israel, symbolizes the peace. It's different from the symbols you see in our day, but it is clearly a symbol. And it's a symbolic action that Jesus says, here's who I am. And not only that, look back at the text with me as you get down to verses 8 and 9 and you have the crowds going before him and after him. And so there are great crowds in front of this donkey and behind the donkey. By the way, uh, you would expect that everybody would come in on foot. And as a matter of fact, with that many people coming into Jerusalem, if Jesus had wanted to just sneak into the city, he could have. Right? Right? All these folks coming. He could have just walked along with the crowd. He sets himself apart by coming in in what is clearly a royal procession. And so in verse 8, they lay their coats on the donkey for him to sit on. And then they put their coats and palm branches in front of him for the donkey to walk on. And they are crying out, verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. They're claiming him to be king. And then at the end of verse 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're claiming not only kingship, they're claiming divinity for the this one who is coming in. It is a royal procession with great crowds coming with them. And notice in verse 10, the whole city of Jerusalem is stirred up. Now why would they even take note of this? John tells us, why did he come to Bethany to Bethpage anyway? Why would he have come to Bethany where he's going to stay anyway? Because his friend Lazarus had died. And what happened when Jesus showed up? He brought Lazarus back from the dead. And so there are there, there murmurings and, and, and rumors and talk about this one. And now here he comes. And the people with him are treating him like a king. And so he enters Jerusalem. And I want you to look at verse 10 because they ask the most appropriate question that you and I must ask. Look at verse 10. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Jesus is showing them he's king by the symbolic action. The people are asking, who is this? And you and I must ask that question. Jesus, without a word, is saying, I am the Old Testament promised king who has come. And so the only response to that king is the response of the Galileans who praise him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. God save us. God save. Save us, God be praised. Who is this? It's a question you must answer. It's a question that I must answer. And Jesus is leaving, no doubt, in our minds who He is. And so look at what the crowds say. This is the crowds that are following Him from Galilee. They're proud that Jesus is from Galilee. So they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Perhaps Matthew is showing us that He is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, the prophet that was promised to come that would be greater than Moses. But certainly, whatever it is, the Galileans are proud that Jesus is coming and here is the prophet from Galilee coming in in a royal procession to come into the capital city and all of Jerusalem is in a stir. Jesus is making his point. So Matthew moves to the next symbolic action. First one, Jesus is the Messianic king promised from the Old Testament. We should praise him as they did. Secondly, beginning verse 12... Now Jesus enters the temple. Mark's gospel tells us this is not the same day. Matthew's not so worried about chronology. He's not been worried about chronology the entire book. I've told you that. Here again, Matthew uh, just kind of reads as Jesus came in, the crowds were stirred up. And verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. Mark says it's the next day. So this whole week or this whole time, Matthew is, or excuse me, Jesus is staying in Bethany. Our assumption would be, I guess, at Lazarus's house, and now he's staying in Bethany, he comes back the next morning to the temple, and he goes in to the temple. In verse 12, he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple, he overturned the tables and money changers and the sale, uh, excuse me, and the seats of those who were selling uh, pigeons for sacrifice in. The temple. So he's entering Jerusalem from the east. When you come into Jerusalem from the east, the first place, the first precinct you would come to is the temple. And so I, I want to I make a note for you here. Because when I was thinking temple, growing up as I, I read this, I think temple. I'm thinking the holy place or the holy of holies. And we think where they make sacrifice and worship. But the temple is so much more than that. That's really just a really small part of the temple. So if you think about the temple from the Old Testament, there are different courts other than just the holy place. That's where only priests could go or the holy of holies where only the high priest could go and only then once a year. So we're not talking about Jesus there. We're talking about the big area which you and I would probably know as the court of the Gentiles. When Herod rebuilt the temple, uh, about 150, a little more than that, 150 years prior to this, he built the temple and uh, made porticos and, and big uh, uh, places out in the court of the Gentiles, which would have been, he expanded the temple, and he made this area of the court of the Gentiles about 30 acres. So if you can imagine, this is a pretty big spot. There are a lot of folks here. Jesus walks in from the east, comes into the temple. The court of the Gentiles, full of people. And now he begins to see what they're doing in this place of worship. And he can't stand what they're doing. So he protests. I don't think he's protesting the fact that they're changing money. Because people are coming from all over the world and they have to use a specific money for the temple. He's protesting the location. And I want you to notice this, church. The second thing that I want to say that Jesus is symbolizing is Jesus is greater than the temple. Worship Him. Jesus is greater than the temple. Worship Him. He comes into the temple, this Galilean in a royal procession coming into Jerusalem, and he claims to be able to say, here's what's right and here's what's wrong in the place that you worship God. And so he drives out the money changers. By the way, the reason I don't think he's driving out just uh, those who are selling is the Bible says he's driving out those who sold and bought. He's saying this ought not to happen in the temple. And so I want you to note what he's doing is declaring, I have authority over this house. It's God's house and I'm in charge. Why? Because I am God. And so... He quotes then Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer. I want to make one note for you that R.T. France makes in his commentary that I think really clears some of this up for me. In verse 13, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 56. Then he says, But you made it a den of robbers. Now that phrase, den of robbers, is alluding to and pretty close to what... Jeremiah uses, back in Jeremiah chapter 7, where he is preaching a sermon to, uh, Israel, or to Judah. And in the Old Testament, right before uh, the Babylonian attacks of, Israel, of, of Judah, uh, Jeremiah is preaching to them because they believe this. We have the temple, and so if, as long as we have control of the temple then no other nation can attack us and defeat us. It was kind of like they thought, we've got the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant was there and and people think, well, we've got the Ark, we've got the presence of God, so nobody can defeat us. The the people of Israel and Judah thought, if we've got the temple, we're, we're not defeatable. No one can defeat us. And so Jeremiah is preaching to them and he says, you say to yourself, we've got the temple, we've got the temple, we've got the temple, and they have not worshipped the God of the temple rather they had worshipped the temple and so it was the God of the temple's presence that made the difference in in Israel in Judah and so Jeremiah says to them there you have made the temple a bandit's cave because you have believed in the temple instead of the God of the temple here Jesus is saying you have made the temple not a house of prayer, which is what it's called. You have made it a bandit's cave, a den of robbers. And so Jesus is alluding to that sermon saying, you have made this something other than worshiping the God that this temple is is signifying. You're worshiping yourself in the midst of a, a building per se. So Jeremiah saying one who is great, or excuse me, Matthew is saying one who is greater than the temple is here. Jesus is saying that by what he's saying to them. And look at verse fourteen, my favorite verse in this entire passage. The only time in Matthew, Mark, Luke that we see Jesus doing the ministry of healing in Jerusalem. We saw Him healing. We've seen Him healing over and over. This is a common phrase in Matthew, but it's always He's traveling other places. The only time we see Him healing in Jerusalem, verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. This is our Savior. He's saying, I am what you need, not the temple. If you want healing, come to Me. He is the One who is greater than the temple, and He heals. He shows us His power again. And so, Just like back in verses 10 through 12, when Jesus made this symbolic action of coming in in a royal procession, there were people who questioned, beginning in verse 15, now Jesus has come into the temple, declared He's greater than the temple, He's over the temple, and people will question. And so the reaction of the temple authorities, look at verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Remember, You know who Jesus is. He comes in as the king. The children are praising him as king and God. Hosanna to the son of David. You are king. That's what they're saying. What happens? Chief priests and the scribes were indignant. And so they ask him a question. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says, yes. Right? So no problem with this. They're saying what is truth. And so now he quotes Psalm chapter eight, verse two, out of the mouth of babes, or excuse me, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, have you have prepared praise? Psalm eight is a psalm that uh, shows us here. He's quoting a psalm that shows us that infants and nursing babies recognize the strength of Yahweh, the strength of the Creator, and they declare it with their mouths. Interesting here, uh, just to note that that nursing babies and many even infants don't talk, and God is saying you have done this God is God is uh Jesus is saying God has said that these are the ones these ones who are crying out Hosanna the son of David they fulfill that they notice they recognize the king is here they recognize that and they cry it out and so Jesus says yes I hear them of course they're going to do it God said they would do it the children are crying out Hosanna to the son of David and so verse 17 he leaves and goes back to Bethany to lodge Second major symbol found here in the temple. Jesus is greater than the temple. How should you and I respond? We should worship Him. He is the one that deserves our worship. That's what they were trying to do in the temple, but Jesus is here and He's greater than the temple. He is the one who deserves our praise. Children, He is the one who deserves our worship. Final symbolic action, beginning in verse 18, Matthew chapter 21. The next morning... He was returning to the city from Bethany where he's staying. He became hungry. I guess if you were walking two miles, you might become hungry as well. I don't know, maybe he skipped breakfast, had to get out early. The Bible doesn't say he just was hungry. And so he sees a fig tree by the wayside. He, he goes to it and finds nothing on it. And notice this phrase, but only leaves. The third statement I want to say about Jesus, and I'll have to explain it to you in this, in this context, is Jesus judges fruitless trees. This was the hardest of these symbols for me to really grasp. And so as I was reading this week, I was looking at how do I understand the fig tree? What are we to do? And, and I came to uh, the conclusion that you and I need to see a couple of things in this text. First, the fig tree has been a symbol in the entire Old Testament for Israel. And so I'm thinking, okay, we've got that symbolism. Not only that, in Matthew's gospel, fruit is a big deal. So I could take you to a couple passages, but certainly Matthew chapter 7 is probably the first time that we really get the idea that fruit is representative of our behavior, the behavior of our lives, and it it means something that we uh, uh, live in a way that reveals what's inside of us. And so then as I come back to this, knowing that Matthew has shown how Jesus made a big deal of fruit, And that the fig tree is a symbol for Israel. And then you've got this phrase there in the middle of verse 19 that doesn't say there was no fruit on the tree. It says, but only leaves, which would lead us to believe that this tree had all of its leaves with no fruit. Now, it's not the time for fruit to be on the fig trees yet. When Passover would come by. That's probably around June. This is probably around April or May. And so Matthew is saying, Jesus is coming up to this tree and he sees the tree. And if it were doing what normal trees would do, it would have a few leaves on it. But when the leaves come, the fruit then starts to come. I've got fruit trees in my house. Uh, That is what happens. You start seeing the blooms and you start seeing the fruit. This one is fully leaved is what we would read and, and kind of assume from the way Matthew is saying this. But there is no fruit. And so what does Jesus do at the end of verse 19? He judges the fruitless tree. Symbolic action, Jesus is the judge who judges fruitless trees. And now what is most significant about this passage is what he says about that. In response to Jesus judging this tree, and this tree in verse 19 withers at once, the disciples, verse 20, marvel when they see it and say, how did the fig tree wither all of a sudden? How did you do something like that, Jesus? How did you become judge? Notice Jesus' response in verse 21. Truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up. This is important. If you have faith and do not doubt, what's he say? Believe, right? So he says it positively, then negatively. If you have faith, that's a positive statement, trust, and do not doubt. The negative statement, don't disbelieve. So believe and don't doubt, then you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. We've seen that phrase from Jesus before to his disciples. And certainly, he doesn't mean literally. Uh, I know that for a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, We haven't seen in history of the church any any literal mountain be taken up and moved to another place. But what we have seen is great things like Peter raising somebody from the dead. We've seen things that are as great as mountains being moved. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, If you believe... You will do great things for the kingdom of God. So what's he saying? Jesus is going to judge and he is judging right now Israel coming in as the king, coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is judging the fruitfulness or the fruitlessness of Israel. Just as he will judge the fruitfulness or the fruitlessness of his disciples and his followers which are you and I. And so I want to say to you this morning, I think as you and I come to this third section, Jesus judges fruitless trees. Believe Him and live by faith. That's what He says. Look at what He says at the, at the end of this. He's already said, if you believe and do not doubt, then you'll do great things like you can say to this mountain, even you could say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown in the sea. Verse 22, and whatever you ask in prayer. Notice how Jesus ties prayer to faith. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now before we move, let me just take a moment to camp out there for about 45 seconds. And I want to make a statement to you, church, that I think you need to take away from this passage of who Jesus is and how we're following Him. And that is this. Listen, your prayer life is a direct reflection of your faith, of your belief. I believe that if statistics are correct, you and I need to be pushed on this in our own lives. Because if statistics are correct, you, normal, evangelical, claim to be born again believer, spend an average of about 30 seconds in prayer a day. Our prayer lives, what we ask of God, how we take ourselves before the Lord, is a direct reflection of, of our belief in King Jesus. And if that's the case, I want to push us to say, Jesus is the judge who will judge your fruitfulness or your fruitlessness, and He invites you in this passage to trust Him, and your trust in Him will be lived out in the way that you pray to Him. Look at the text one more time and see what Jesus says. You will, this is verse 21, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, watch this, it will happen. He says it in such a way that you are not going to take the mountain and throw it into the sea. God is going to do the work. So when you go to Him and ask Him, as He invites you to do in this passage, what you're saying is, Lord, I need you to act, and I believe you will act. And so the promise in verse 22 is, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive the condition if you have faith. If you trust God, this is not just a carte blanche, I want houses and fame and fortune and all this stuff. It is, I believe you, so I'm going to ask in according to my trust in you, which would be, Lord, I'm asking for you to be glorified, for your will to be done, because I trust you, not me. So what will you ask? My question to you this morning is, are you asking Jesus is the judge who judges our fruitfulness or our fruitlessness, and he invites us to pray. And your prayer life will be a direct reflection of your trust in the Savior. We have just a few verses left. Let me finish. We've seen Jesus, through three symbolic actions, say, I am the promised king who comes in peace, I am greater than the temple. And I am the judge of your life. Now, you and I will respond to him. I don't think reading this text carefully, I have not done justice to dig into every part of this symbolism. So I don't have time to give you every piece of the symbolism. But this morning, if you will agree with me, this is what this royal procession, I am the king, promised. I am the greater than the temple. I have authority over it, and I am the judge who judges fruitfulness or fruitlessness. If you will give me that, then I will say to you, you must respond to him. And he's shown you by his actions who he is. Will you praise him, worship him, and believe him? Or will you question and respond in unbelief? There really is no other choice. We either respond saying, Jesus, you are king. We praise you. We worship you, we trust you, or we respond in unbelief and question who he really is. Verse 23 through 27, Jesus has caused quite a stir in Jerusalem and they must respond to him. He had intended to do so. I think I've shown you his symbolism has intended to take the veil away and say, I am the king. And it has caused a stir. And so verse 23, the Sanhedrin, here the chief priests and elders, excuse me, elders come up to him. And as he was teaching, so he's probably in the temple again teaching people. And they say to him this question, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So they ask him two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? What are these things? Coming in as a king, cleansing the temple, teaching like you are right now. Cursing the fig tree, judging a fig tree, by what authority do you do these things? And then, and who gave it to you? You see, their assumption is we are the authority here. This is our temple. We are the religious leaders here. Who are you to step in here? And you might respond that way, and the world is responding that way. Jesus, who are you to tell me how I'm to live? And the question that we would, the the answer that we would respond is, He's the Creator. But here, Jesus comes back and says to them, not an answer, but a question. So, very briefly, what does he say to them? Uh, Let me ask you one question. In response to your two questions, Matthew makes it clear. I want to ask you a single question. John, his teaching. Was it from heaven? Or was it from man? In other words, did God call John? Was he a prophet of God? Or was he just a man teaching on his own? And so they find themselves in a quandary. Why? Because John declared... There's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to strap, and he is the Son of God. And so if they say it's from God, they are proclaiming, Jesus, you're right, your your authority comes from who John says it came from, and you are of God. They can't say that. Why? Because they don't believe it. You see, the one thing that I believe about these guys is they do have the integrity to say, we can't believe that. And they don't. But then they say, but we can't say it's from man because all these people think John was a prophet and we don't want to be unpopular with the people right here in the midst of the temple and all these people here, so we can't say that. So they said, we're not willing to say. And Jesus says, so neither am I. And the point is, you know what I believe and what I've claimed and you won't face it, nor will you let others face it on your account. Jesus has claimed to be the king who comes in peace. He is claimed to be greater than the temple who deserves our worship. And he's claimed to be the judge who will judge the fruitfulness and fruitlessness of our lives. And the question this morning is, will you and I trust him? Friends, listen to me carefully. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it will not be on a donkey. It will be on a war horse. And it will be to reign forever and ever and then, you and I who have come to Him now as our God and our King, we will reign with Him forever and ever in a forever kingdom. But these elders, religious leaders reject Him. And how sad it is that you and I read Matthew's gospel and we see the symbolism we say, how did they not get it? How did they not get it? How did they refuse to believe? And yet so many maybe even here today, hear it, see it, and choose to walk out and not respond. My invitation to you is simple. Will you respond to this king who has come and who will be king forever? Will you Give your life to Him. Will you repent of your sin and yourself and come to Him? This morning, I want to invite you, right after this service, I will be standing right here for quite some time. I will wait until you come. If you will come right after the service, just come grab my hand and say, I want to talk about coming to this King. I'll be here and I'll take however much time it needs. Church, for those of us who have surrendered to this King, here's my question, my challenge to you. Very simple, one point. What does your prayer life reveal about your faith? And will you allow the Spirit to draw you to trust Him? And what does
0: that mean about your own prayer life and how it should change?